Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. On the 15th of April 2011, tax day in the United States, over 200 people gathered in the gallery at Foyles on Charing Cross Road to celebrate the life and work of the late David Foster Wallace, as well as to launch his posthumous novel, The Pale King. Paul Murray kicked things off reading the opening of the book. Catherine O'Flynn then read from Infinite Jest. And finally, Michael Peach, David's editor, and Bonnie Nadell, his lifelong agent, spoke in conversation with Jonathan Derbyshire, the culture editor at the New Statesman magazine, about David's work, publishing The Pale King, and the tragic loss of a great friend and tremendous talent. As you all know, this is a, it's a very special day. It's the UK launch of The Pale King. Certainly for me, and probably for a lot of you, the most anticipated novel of the last few years, um, from unarguably one of the very greatest novelists of the last um, three or four decades. So it's very exciting to be here. Um, some of you, you will um, know the book's already been on sale for a few days at Foils and elsewhere, and I was very happy, indeed very moved, to open an Evening Standard last night and see The Pale King sitting at the top of the London bestseller list, which just felt like an amazing moment. Um, there are some other people I want to welcome, um, particularly uh, Bonnie Nadell and Michael Peach. Um, Bonnie is one of uh, uh, David's oldest friends, uh, his literary agent and his literary executor. She's come all the way from California to be with us today. Uh, I'd also like to welcome Michael Peach, who uh, another old friend of David's and his longtime editor, and the man who, ha- who did an absolutely amazing job on um, bringing this book into being. And you're going to hear a bit more about that later from Jonathan Derbyshire, who's also here, and uh, he'll be talking to Bonnie and Michael about the genesis of the book, the making of the book, and, of course, about... I know a lot of us would want to hear more about... Um, both of their experience of working with David uh, over many, many years. So um, I really want to welcome them and thank them. Bonnie's come from California and Michael from New York. And um, another thing we're going to do this evening is have uh, a couple of short readings from authors, uh, novelists, fellow novelists who are passionate readers of of David's work, um, Paul Murray and Catherine O'Flynn. And in a minute, I'm going to pass over to um, Paul, who's going to read the opening pages of, um, of The Pale King. So, welcome today, and I'll now hand over to to these good people, Um, first to Paul. So, um, will you just please join me in um, clapping your hands and welcome. Hi. Past the flannel plains and blacktop graphs and skylines of canted rest, and past the tobacco-brown river overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water-down river to the place beyond the windbreak where untilled fields simmer shrilly in the a.m. heat. Shattercane, lamb's quarter, cut grass, sawbriar, nut grass, jimson weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtail, muscadine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping charlie, butterprint, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butcher grass, invaginate volunteer beans, all heads gently nodding in a morning breeze like a mother's soft hand on your cheek. An arrow of starlings fired from the windbreak's thatch. The glitter of June that stays where it is and steams all day. A sunflower, four more, one bowed, and horses in the distance standing rigid and still as toys, all nodding. Electric sounds of insects at their business. Ale-coloured sunshine and pale sky. 
and halls and halls of Cirrus so high they cast no all business all the time. Quartz and chert and schist and chondrite iron scabs in granite. Very old land. Look around you. The horizon trembling, shapeless. We are all of us brothers. Some crows come overhead then, three or four, not a murder, on the wing, silent with intent, cornbound for the pasture's wire, beyond which one horse smells at the other's behind, the lead horse's tail obligingly lifted, your shoes brand incised in the dew, an alfalfa breeze, socks burrs, dry scratching inside a culvert, rusted wire and tilted posts more a symbol of restraint than a fence per se, no hunting, the shush of the interstate off past the windbreak, the pasture's crows standing at angles, turning up patties to get at the worms underneath, the shapes of the worms incised in the overturned dung and baked by the sun all day until hardened, there to stay, tiny vacant lines in rows and inset curls that do not close because head never quite touches tail. Read these. I'm going to read a little bit from Infinite Jest about the uh, rise and fall of the video phone. A traditional owl-only conversation utilising a handheld phone whose earpiece contained only six little pinholes but whose mouthpiece, rather significantly it later seemed, contained six squared or 36 little pinholes let you enter a kind of highway, hypnotic, semi-attentive fugue. While conversing, you could look around the room doodle, fine groom, peel tiny bits of dead skin away from your cuticles, compose fine foam pad haiku, stir things on the stove. You could even carry on a whole separate additional sign language and exaggerated facial expression type of conversation with people right there in the room with you, all while seeming to be right there attending closely to the voice on the phone. And yet, and this was the retrospectively marvellous part, even as you were dividing your attention between the phone call and all sorts of other idle little fugue-like activities, you were somehow never haunted by the suspicion that the person on the other end's attention might be similarly divided. <laughs> During a traditional call, e.g., as you, let's say, performed a close tactile blemish scan of your chin, you were in no way oppressed by the thought that your phone mate was perhaps also devoting a good percentage of her attention to a close tactile blemish scan. It was an illusion, and the illusion was aural and aurally supported. The phone line's other end's voice was dense, tightly compressed, and vectored right into your ear, enabling you to imagine that the voice's owner's attention was similarly compressed and focused, even though your own attention was not, was the thing. This bilateral illusion of unilateral attention was almost infantilely gratifying from an emotional standpoint. You've got to believe you are receiving somebody's complete attention without having to return it. <laughs> Regarded with the objectivity of hindsight, the illusion appears irrational, almost literally fantastic. It would be like being able both to lie and to trust other people at the same time. Video telephony rendered the fantasy insupportable. Callers now found they had to compose the same sort of earnest, slightly over-intense listener's expression they had to compose for in-person exchanges. Those callers who, out of unconscious habit, succumbed to fugue-like doodling or pants-crease adjustment now, now came off looking rude, absent-minded or childishly self-absorbed. Callers who even more unconsciously blemish-scanned or nostril-explored looked up to find horrified expressions on the video faces at the other end, all of which resulted in videophonic stress. 
even worse, of course, was the traumatic expulsion from Eden feeling of looking up from tracing your thumb's outline on the reminder pad or adjusting the old unit's angle of repose in your shorts and actually seeing your videophonic interfacee idly strip a shoelace of its gumlet as she talked to you and suddenly realising your whole infantile fantasy of commanding your partner's attention while you yourself got to fugue-doodle and make little genital adjustments was deluded and insupportable, and that you were actually commanding not one bit more attention than you were paying here. The whole attention business was monstrously stressful, video callers found. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul and Catherine. Um, that's why we're here, because of that prose, um, those sentences. That's probably one sentence, though. Um, and that voice instantly, instantly recognisable. Um, can you all hear me? Um, it's an incredible honour for me to be on the same stage as two people who played such an important role in one of the most important careers in American post-war letters. Um, Bonnie Nadell and Michael Peach. So I'd like to start by just talking to you both about um, your experience of working with David. You, bo you both worked with him for um, many years. Bonnie, you got to know him when he was still um, a writing stu a student in the writing program at Amherst University, uh, at Actually, University of Arizona, yeah. sorry, in 1985. So um, did he send you some work? How did, it, um, how did you get to know each other? Um, we got to know each other... Um, in the fall of 1985, um, I had just started as an agent, I mean, like, literally two weeks before, and had no clients. And what you do when you're first starting as an agent is you answer the phone and you open the mail. And one day, a letter came, and it... This is sort of weird. Um, okay. Um, I opened up this letter and said, I'm a writing student. I'm getting my MFA at the University of Arizona, and I've just graduated from Amherst, and I've won this story prize in Amherst, and I've sent a diachronic chapter of a novel. Oh, and by the way, I'm you know 23 years old. Um, and I was a year older, and I'm like, who's this person who's using a word I don't actually even know what it means? <laughs> so first thing I did is I looked up diachronic and found out it was the opposite of synchronic and in, out of order, and read the chapter, and it was the eighth chapter of Broom of the System, and I loved it. I thought I'd never read anyone like this. Um, at that time in America, it was very much the age of Brat Pack writing. Um, books like Less Than Zero and Bright Lights Big City and Raymond Carver. And everything was very minimalist and very, he drank, she walked. And <laughs> here, was, here was this person with this wild, crazy chapter. And I said, well, can you send me the rest of it? And since I didn't have anything to do, um, <laughs> I could read way faster than everybody else. So whatever other agents he had sent it to um, didn't read it as fast. And so I read Broom of the System in a very big hurry and loved it. And then sort of said, oh, but you need to change this and you need to change that. And actually, because the book ends mid-sentence, it ends, I'm a man of my... And the last word is obviously word. And I'm like, you know, who do you think you are? You think you're Thomas Pynchon? You know, you're not. Um, you have to end it. And he was like, no. And he wrote me this whole long letter and, like, phone calls <laughs> and explaining, like, no. And, I mean, at that point, I did realize David was the smartest person I've 
had ever met and probably ever would meet. And so I'm like, okay, fine. And editor's gonna, you know, an editor's gonna make you change it. Um, but, <laughs> but they did not. Um, and so that's how Dave and I started. And actually when I sold that book, just for any of you who are writers out there, I was turned down by everyone except for one editor. Um, everyone else was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, but no. And, but there was one person who really um, loved the book. This was before I knew Michael. Um, but um, a man named Jerry Howard, who was then at Viking Penguin, and who bought Brim the System when, you know, before anybody else would. Michael, you came on board with Infinite Jest, uh, which must have been an editing challenge like no other you'd ever um, <laughs> taken on before. You'll have seen that well, you'll, you've all read Infinite Jest. You know it's a 1,100-page brick of a thing. Um, you presumably wrestled that down from about 5,000 pages, <laughs> did you? I was well warned of, the, uh, of, what, of what lay ahead. Uh, Bonnie had introduced me to David's works, sending me some, uh, some stories he published in obscure magazines uh, for reasons of her own after he already had a contract elsewhere, uh, triangulating <laughs> or something. And, uh, and I, I was wild about what I read, and uh, she introduced me to David when they were in New York at some point, one, he, well, before he had published uh, After Room of the System and before Girl with Curious Hair. I met him and we began a correspondence um, of moderate indecency. Um, <laughs> Of a professional nature entirely. Um, <laughs> and uh, then it came, and what this all was was leading up to Bonnie um, seeking a contract for Infinite Jest and wanting to have other editors possibly available if should it not work out with the house he was, uh, he was presently working with. Um, and uh, as it happened, that's, that, that, that is what happened. Um, and uh, the conversations that uh, I had with David. Uh, were after we saw the first 150 pages, which is what was submitted of Infinite Jest, and he warned all of us that it was going to be very, very long, but you don't really know how long long is. Um, right. uh, but what he said is that he wanted to work with someone who he felt he would listen to um, or trust um, because he knew it was going to be long enough that it would be extremely challenging to the patience or, or, or longevity of anyone reading it. And he wanted someone who, whose advice he might take when, when changes were su suggested. And that led up to this epic editorial um, back and forth um, in stages. Um, and our goal, my goal was, or our agreement was that uh, our goal together was to make the book as short as it could be and still be itself. So there were you know, many passages that I proposed removing, not because there was anything terrible about them. There were many of them. They're brilliant, but they, they, they were somehow, they repeated an idea. They repeated, a, they were similar to another scene and the book would not die if they came out. So basically what, what, what Infinite Jest is, is everything David wrote that he felt the book needed to live. And I should never reveal this, but the video, the brilliant video telephony chapter that you just <laughs> read, I suggested he remove it. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's beautiful. But it fell out whole. I mean, the book did not, would, 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 I felt it came out whole. And he said, no, I've read that out loud. People laugh a lot. That's staying in. Michael, just to give people a sense of quite how obsessively the two of you worked on the book, can I read a couple, just from some of David's uh, letters to you um, when you were working sure. on Infinite Jest, which you um, reproduced in the speech you gave at a memorial service um, a month after he died. Uh, so this is um, David Foster writing to Michael Peach. Page 52. This is one of my personal favourite Swiftian lines in the whole manuscript, which I will cut, you rotter. <laughs> Page 82. 
I cut this and have now come back an hour later and put it back. <laughs> the familiar story, presumably. Page 133. Poor old footnote 33. We should talk about the footnotes. Uh, the end notes. Um, about the grammar exam is cut. I'll also erase it from the backup disk so I can't come back in an hour and put it back in. <laughs> an enduring hazard, I'm finding. Uh, pages 300, 327 to 30. Michael, have mercy. Pending an almost horatiously persuasive rationale on your part, my canines are bared on this one. Um, entirely typical exchange, presumably. Yes, yes. The, 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 and you see the sense of play there. I mean, he would argue fiercely, but with a sense of humor, and, and he made it clear when he was not going to back down. And, and an editor's work is persuasion and suggestion and cajoling and... and uh, um, and the book is the entire, entirely the writers. I mean, it's not as though I changed Infinite Jest. I helped. I was someone among the people whom David trusted enough to show it to it was early on. But the, the, my contention is that the work as edited is entirely his book. And did you find that most of the work was architectural, or was it work at the level of the, at the level of the sentence? Uh, the work was in. Um, it was. Primarily attempts at compression, but there were areas of this of the plot that I just I found so extraordinarily opaque and confusing and just mind-numbing. Just just the number of times I read the the, the passage with the 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 um, the Canadian passages involving the Canadian um, Roland. Um, I'm not forgetting the Roland. And and they were they were speaking intentionally badly translated French, and it was just it was really complicated. I, I just said, David. This is a wall many readers will not climb over. They, I'm, I'm seriously, that was, that was a kind of, that people are going to just give up. They're going to fall asleep. They're going to say, this is too hard. I have no idea what's going on. You either have to make this clear to the, the, the actual events that are happening more, more, more comprehensible or, or take it out. So he actually did some really significant revision there and some expansion to make the, that, uh, that plot make more sense. Um, which is, and, yeah. Yes, I've, I've cut 300 pages and, and added. I'm making that up, actually. That's not true. Um, but he did. But, but it was mostly just looking for places that uh, could be compressed. Um, Bonnie, um, presumably being David's agent, also brought with it distinctive challenges. In that same at that same memorial service, you you wrote or you said um, being David's agent often meant being a shield for him. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well. David was not someone who he was not someone who liked publicity, um, and this came about this came about fairly early on. I mean, having represented everything he ever did, um, room of the system. He was very young, and um, when you're 25 and things start happening, and you start reviews, you know, when they're bad, they hurt, and when they're good, you believe them too much, and after Broom of the System and after Girl with Curious Hair, and Girl with Curious Hair was not received particularly well. People didn't get it. People didn't like it. People were sort of offhand about it. David went through a really bad stage. And when I say really bad stage, it's not like, oh, you know, he stayed home for a day. I mean, this was in and out of mental hospitals. This was electric shock therapy. This was going to visit him in McLean's Hospital, which um, is the... Um, the sort of psychiatric hospital associated with Harvard and Cambridge. Um, so that that was sort of he couldn't deal with a certain level of of attention of media. It sort of turned his head in bad ways. And so I knew this. And so by the time 
we got past, I mean, when we got to Infinite Jest, what happened is we knew David had to do a lot of publicity. This was an 1,100-page book when people did not write 1,100-page books. And Little Brown did everything in their power to make people read it and pay attention to it, but it also meant he had to be out there and doing readings and being interviewed by everyone and anyone who would be interview him. Um, but it was only after that that I could really be like, you know, he only wants to do three things. Pick the three things you really want. Um, and so being a shield meant, you know, saying no to things and saying you need to do this much or you need to do one thing for this publisher. And it's not that he didn't want to see people. He actually wrote back to every single person who ever wrote to him. He would send back a postcard or he'd send back a note. He was not one for email. Um, he had like secret email addresses and never gave them out and barely ever read his email. Um, but he wrote postcards back to everyone. I mean, he, he was very happy to engage with his readers. He just was not one for the sort of machinery of, of publicity and media attention that one usually sort of has to go through. It just, it wasn't good for his head and he knew it. You also said, um, something which struck me as incredibly interesting. He said David needed to keep himself um, apart from the noise of the, our culture. Um, uh, that's clear now that um, he, he needed to protect himself. But on the other hand, and this probably takes us to one of the central themes of his, his fiction, um, one of the things he tried to do in his fiction was find a style that was capacious enough to accommodate all that, all that noise. And yet one of the great structuring paradoxes of his work is that on the other hand he was also looking we're asking himself, constantly asking himself the question how it's possible to live a to tolerably human life amidst all that, all that noise. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to say about that. I mean, is that, does that sound to you like an accurate summation of what the, project, what the project was about? Yeah, I mean, for someone who didn't watch TV and didn't have a TV for a good portion of his life, he was awfully knowledgeable about everything that was going on in our culture. Yeah, I mean, we do. We live in an incredibly noisy world, which the rest of us sort of deal with. But it just, he, he, it was, it, it was hard for him. But yet, he could write about it and sort of think about video phones before, before anything like that exists. I mean, you know, now, of course, everyone's Skyping and, you know, on their iChat, and, you know, there's no such thing. He never even had a mobile phone. He, he agonized on the, on the, um on the, he was agonized on the, on the horns of, of ego and modesty. Yeah. And, and he writes about it, about it often. He, he, the idea of appearing in front of people gave him deep, deep horrors. When he did it, he was just as brilliant and funny as, as anyone you've ever encountered in front of an audience. Mm -hmm. But I think he found um, the, uh, the need for ego gratific gratification terrifying. He told me that uh, he, he, he had arrived in, at, at the, uh, after working with Bonnie at the idea of just never, ever, ever reading reviews. He said, please only call me if there is a really bad one in a very public place so I can understand why people are looking at me pityingly. <laughs> and then another time when he sent him a book, a, post, a poster we had made of Infinite Jest, he wrote, I'm going to put this in, put this in my gloat room. And he put all these things like that in a room that he would then close the door and once in a while he would let himself go have a, feel good about, uh, about the about the response he was getting, but he was, he was very uncertain how to, how, how to deal with the response. He hated the idea of television. He's written about this, horrified him more than anything. The idea somehow of being 
of visual and auditory presence to people in a way that they partake as human, but to you as completely inhuman was something he, he, he agonized about. He appeared, I think, on television one time, perhaps twice, in order to help friends of his who were writers who he wanted to, who he wanted to help them gain attention. He agreed to go on the Charlie Rose show with Jonathan Franzen and Mark Lehner so that they could be uh, publicized. Uh, you're talking about sheer psychic well-being yeah, there, yeah. but um, there was a similar conflict in his in his writerly personality, wasn't there? Because he also mistrusted his own comic gifts. And, um, when he said in the, there's a, a quite now famous interview with Larry McCaffrey in yeah. 1993, yeah. where he talked about um, <clears throat> he despaired of his own addiction to formal stunt pilotry and. Uh, and gags. Um, do you think the sort of arc of his career is his um, can be described as his, his weaning himself off that kind of um, comic addiction? It seems to me that The Pale King is a, a very direct attempt to achieve what he spoke of in, in that and other interviews. He, he mistrusted post, post, postmodern uh, yeah. Jim, Jim, Jim Crackery, is that the word? Yeah. Um, and his own, into, I mean, how good he was at being funny and, uh, and, and, uh, and relying on complications. And he, he, he wrote of wanting to connect directly to people in their human lives and help them, help them feel things that they want to feel and help them understand things they want to understand. And, in, and the project he chose in writing The Pale King was to write about... <clears throat> the difficult parts of life, not to write a novel that was compressed around the interesting parts, but in fact to focus on the vast passages of life that are hard because they're repetitious and tedious and are full of irrelevant complexity, as he, is a, the, the term he used, and, and uh, to try to create a great novel about the bits that other writers have always avoided, uh, and as a way of looking at the distance between yourself, between the solipsistic impulse, and if, if you read the, the Pale King, you'll see it's it's packed with with solipsistic imagery. There's a character who spends whose whose job his entire life is a mirror inspector, and his job is to look for flaws in mirrors, as seeing his face. There's a, there's a character who's a child whose goal in life he perceives as soon as he becomes self-aware, it's just he needs to kiss every inch of his own skin before he dies. Um, and there are many many iterations of this of this idea of, of just the, the invo involvement with yourself and. Um, what the novel I think it's getting at is the work to get outside yourself. When yourself is so interesting to you, how do you actually reach another person? There's this gigantic field between you and everyone else that you come somehow have to navigate and understand in order to get at connection to another human being or love yeah. or joy or anything worthwhile. But there's also a deep interest in the novel in the possibilities in a culture like ours, you know, amidst the American tumult, as it were, of absorption and immersion. So in the novel, those of you who've read it will know there's a cast of uh, tax inspectors who are known as the immersives because they can concentrate on a, you know, on a pile of tax returns for, uh, for hours at a time. And it's in a sense that one of the things that fascinated me about the tax office was this was a kind of sanctuary from precisely what you were talking about, the, the, noise, uh, the noise of the culture. Um, yes, and I mean, these are people who, some of them have this immense ability to concentrate. And there's one scene, which is one of my favorites in The Pale King, where there's this woman, there's the various wigglers, as they're also known, the tax, you know, the sort of early on tax inspectors, um, who are in a bar and they all go to a bar after work. And this woman is sort of nattering on about herself and she's so beautiful and how men talk to her. And the man she's talking to seems to have no affect, but he keeps, le he's levitating because he's concentrating so hard on what she's saying. And so, <laughs> He gets higher and higher and higher up as 
they're talking, and she sort of looks at him at some point, and she realizes like he's way higher up than he started the conversation. Um, but he has this ability to concentrate, which is extraordinary, and he's concentrating so hard on her words. Um, and what she's sort of saying is like, all people do is look at me because I'm so pretty. Um, but he's actually paying attention to what she's saying. I mean, David wrote, he was trying to write his way out of loneliness, mm. which, and into connection with people. I mean, loneliness was his great, great subject, wasn't it? Yeah, kind yeah. of was. Yeah. Um, let's talk a bit about the circumstances in which this book came to be, came to be published posthumously. So the obvious question, Bonnie, when David said to you, uh, yeah, I'm writing, my next novel is set in a tax office in central Illinois. Uh, what was your response? Um, he, when he said, oh, I'm writing about taxes in the 1980s in Illinois, I think I sort of went, huh, <laughs> huh, okay. Um, I mean, this was, I knew he was writing what he referred to so kindly as the long thing, and Michael knew about the long thing, but neither of us had read a word of it. And... It was during the Bush years, which were, needless to say, not probably any of our favorite years in our own country. Um, and so I was like, well, why don't you write about now? And he's like, I'm writing about now, sort of, but I'm writing about now from the 1980s perspective. And so I knew what it was, and we had talked about, you know, sending 200 pages and, you know, getting a contract with Little Brown and... All of that was sort of talked about in 2007, and then it just never, you know, things got bad, and it never happened. You mentioned those 200 pages, so the, um, you can maybe fill in for people who don't know the, the exact circumstance of your, your working with the manuscript. So a couple of months after David died, you and his widow, Karen Green, went into his office, which is in his garage in Claremont, California. And there were 200 neatly stacked manuscript pages on, on his desk, and that was the basis of what we now know as the Pale King, is that right? Well, it was the beginning of the Pale King. And, I mean, it wasn't like we didn't know they were there. Um, we knew they were there from the day after, you know, from the day he died. Um, it just took us about two and a half months to get the wherewithal to say, all right, we're going to go deal with this, and we're going to do it. So it wasn't... It wasn't a surprise that they existed. We just <clears throat> needed a little bit of time and strength to do it. And Karen and I had become very close. I mean, we'd always been friendly, but there's a big difference. You know, she was the wife of my client, and we were chat, but it wasn't the way it became after. Um, and we spent every weekend um, from November on till about January when Michael came um, and picked up all the pages of The Pale King. Um, looking through what was there, I mean, the first two, what we thought was the first 200 pages, which turns out not to be exactly the first 200 pages, um, but is also what I had shown Simon and Simon bought, um, was stacked neatly on his desk. And then, of course, we started going through the piles and the drawers and the plastic bins that he had stuff in, and then we're like, oh, this is all the Pale King. And computer disks, I mean, it was sort of all over the place. And so Michael was then given two sets full of this material to take back on a plane to New York. Now, um, Michael, you were asked by Bonnie and Karen Green to see if you could fashion this into something like a novel. Um, did you ever hes <coughs> hesitate on taking that task? 
No, can we just all acknowledge the, the grievousness of this gathering? Um, it was really sad. I mean, it's heartbreaking that he's not here and that this book is, is, uh, is he did not complete it. But um, what we, um, I came to California and I read these 200 pages and I thought, I, I thought it was the opening of the book because the, it's the chapter that begins author here and then it's David Foster Wallace talking to you and explaining this, this is, um, you know, go back and read the copyright page, you need to read the boring bits. Um, and here's why, because it's actually a work of nonfiction, but the publisher's making me publish it as a work of fiction. But then you get to footnote eight, and it explains actually that the publisher has forced him to put this opening chapter deep inside the novel for reasons of their own. So what I thought was the opening of the book we were reading, and it turns out was not the opening of, of, the, of the book. So these 200 pages we later understood were extracted from various portions of the novel. There were chapters, I believe, that he was, there were, been, there were, polished to a high degree and finished in that he felt comfortable showing um, as a sign of evidence of progress on, on the book. Um, and my, my task was to, was to read everything that he had written, which amassed totaling something like 3,000 pages of various drafts, some, some, multi, some eight versions of a chapter and other, um, others handwritten first drafts, and to read it all and see whether, advised Bonnie and Karen, whether I felt there was something that could be called a novel in here, whether he had written a full novel, whether it was publishable, whether it made sense, um, and uh, what I found was, uh, I was awestruck by what I found. When you, if you haven't read the book, you will find he'd written deep into this beautiful, complete world, and, and, um, and uh, my task was to, was to find a sequence for it, um, which was kind of a jigsaw puzzling over a couple of years uh, before I'd absorbed everything and found the latest, the final, the last version of every chapter of which there are multiple drafts, find the chapters that needed to fall in a chronological order, and then order the other chapters in a way that seemed to make sense and to help the, the story unfold in, uh, logically and, and entertainingly because it's, it's full of brilliantly funny bits and, as well as agonizing, agonizing, heartbreaking, uh, death-looking bits. Um, so it was, a, it, was a, it was a sequencing and a tonal, uh, tonal variation and, 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 and finding, finding the, the, order, the logical order as well. Uh, I think everyone who's read the novel agree you've done something extraordinary it's, um, uh, it is a novel um, and it's going to prove to be one of the important novels of post-war American fiction I think that's fairly, that's fairly clear um, you talked about the beginning of the novel so the, in, in fact the bit that you've chosen to put at the front of the novel was the bit that Paul wrote um, and that's a really interesting passage because it's a peen to the Midwest and to the landscape of his childhood and adolescence um, and I think what we're getting to understand much clearer now, what, now we reread Wallace and reread and reread Wallace um, obsessively, as I'm sure everyone in this room is doing, is that he had a relationship to the American heartland that other novelists of his generation, you mentioned the young novelists around the mid-80s, Brett Eastmouses and Jay McNamus, not interested in the American heartland. And I think David's relationship to the Midwest and to the American heartland is an essential part of who he was as a, as a writer. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. He was a Midwestern boy. And he, he had the manners of Midwesterners, which are much more polite than either New Yorkers or Californians, speaking as someone who's lived in both cities. Um, and he loved the landscape of them. I mean, the flatness, the tornadoes. I mean, he not only lived there when he was growing up, he went back to Illinois and lived there and taught there for a number of years. And actually, that's where he took the accounting classes that he took in order to be able to write about taxes. And some of the accountants who he conversed with um, and had correspondences with are from Illinois. I have no idea how he found them, 
But these were Illinois accountants who he, you know, he found to sort of ask questions of like, what does this mean and what does that mean with taxes? But yeah, he's very much a Midwestern writer. Um, you mentioned the fact that you're encouraging David to write a book set in the, the Bush years. I mean, he didn't, but this is a deeply political, in a way, Michael, un- quite unlike um, some of his other work. I mean, there is a long section, which I think one, one reviewer dismissed as being rather boring, but I found actually deeply fascinating, which is a discussion between um, Mr. Glenn Denning, I uh, can't remember what position he is, is he the director of the, the centre? Um, yes. Uh, about... Um, what he calls the clash between civics and selfishness. Um, and so there's a, I mean, the, the nar- narrative tension in the novel derives from this um, battle between the old guard, like Mr. Glenn Denning, who represent um, uh, a conception of taxation as an essential contribution to the common good, and then the new guard who think that the IRS should be restructured as a corporation which is there to maxim- to be a profit-making centre. He, the, the novel said at the... Um at the cusp of the of the Republican uh, Bush Reagan era, and uh, this argument, which uh, among uh, I think six or seven uh, IRS employees who are stuck in an elevator together for several hours, it gradually becomes clear. It's, it's mostly dialogue, but once in a while, says someone says something like, like "Keep that up, I'm going to throw you off this damn car." Um, and they're having a discussion about civics. Um, stuck in an elevator talking about civics. Basically, he, was, what, he, he loved the challenge of, of creating these boring setups and then making them brilliant. And the conversation in this, in this uh, elevator about um, how taxation is basically the, is the lifeblood of a nation. A nation is an idea of people somehow doing something together larger than they could do on their own. And, and uh, taxation is lifeblood, and the IRS is the, is the heart of that, you know, pumping the blood. So the most boring work in the world is the most important work in, in, in a nation to, to make sure that we get the money and, and uh, redistribute it. And the discussion is about whether the IRS should be a, a, a law enforcement agency whose job is to catch the biggest uh, cheaters or a, a corporate one um, because Reagan had sold, you know, had these financial ideas about cutting, cutting taxes and raising spending and it wasn't working out, they needed more money. So should we turn it into a corporate entity whose job is just to identify what are the most profitable returns to pursue rather than uh, the p- people who are doing the, uh, committing the largest crimes. So it's, it was, it was a, 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 moral dis- a moral political discussion of a kind that um, I didn't see earlier in his work. And you included, um, at the end of the novel, you've included some of David's um, notes, um, notes and uh, jottings from his notebooks. And at one point he writes a note to himself saying, the big question in the novel is whether the IRS is a moral enterprise or, or it's a corporation. And that's a reminder that Fundamentally, and uh, Wallace was a, was a moralist, wasn't he? He was. He was a very moral writer. Yeah. Um, shall we open discussion to questions? Because I sense um, an extreme impatience on the part of the audience to um, uh, interrogate you further. Um, are there any microphones, or do people have to shut? Yeah. Um, does anybody have any questions for Bonnie or Michael? Great. Yes, question here. Well, you talked briefly about choosing the beginning of the novel. Is the end of the novel easy, obvious or easy to decide where you get the text is going to finish in the book? The, um, the opening passage, I, I have discovered, I, I wrote an error in the editor's note that there was no designated opening or closing passage. Looking through the manuscript recently, I saw that the word, that, that the chapter which is the opening now, 
um, in one draft or so had the word open in it. And it was, there were several chapters that were designated as various, at various times as possible openings, so I did make a choice among them. But it, he, he clearly saw it as a way into this landscape, and it is addressed directly to the reader. It's, in the, it's, uh, it's, it's an apostrophe. And um, the, the chapter that I chose at the ending, there was no ending chapter with, of any designation at all, but it similarly um, it speaks directly to the reader. Uh, it, um, it is addressed to you, and I felt that, and it, it's, I felt that it was a, an appropriate ending point. That it's it's a turning into darkness, um, descending a staircase, uh, in, uh, a character uh, being hypnotized, and it, it was the only two pieces I found that had that mode of address. So it seems to me they they, they worked as a kind of bookend. Anybody else? That's a great question, and and how does one edit a posthumous work is uh, is a matter of ultimate of enormous uh, sensitivity. And uh, Bonnie and Kieran are the executors, and uh, um, the last word on what form the book could have. But the rules we uh, agreed together was that the book, the the text should be edited as little as possible and have it still make sense, um, and not 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 dissolve into incoherence. And there were there were about twenty percent of the book is made up out of chapters that were still in, in handwritten first drafts. He had literally never revised them, and some of them had notes in the margin to the effect, you know, reduced by 50% in, in, when, when, when you come back to it. Um, so in a couple of cases in conversation with Bonnie, we, we, we did a small amount of, of uh, compression. Um, but in general, we erred on the side of leaving it as he wrote, as, as he wrote it, um, feeling like because an editor, the editing, as I said, is a conversation and a persuasion, and when the other the writer is not there to respond, I feel that uh, that um, that uh, it, much editing just isn't appropriate. But Bonnie, Bonnie, Bonnie had strong feelings about this also. Um, I guess you know, I've been reading David from the very beginning. Um, he used to tell me I didn't have an abstract bone in my body, um, which you know, which is true probably, um, and <coughs> and I think I sort of said to Michael, like, just because he's not here to answer us doesn't mean we don't get to cut certain things. Um, and I think I was probably more on, you know, oh, like, I don't understand this, like, or, like, let's cut this a little bit. Um, and so we cut some things a little bit because even we thought they... David did tend to go on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly those passages which were designated cut cut and, you know, compress, we felt that, like that was more of an invitation. There are also long passages which were bracketed, which I came to understand were passages he was thinking about deleting. So we took a freer hand in, in removing the passages that he had bracketed uh, in that way. The main edits to the book were simply making it, creating a, a consistency. He wrote this book, I mean, the drafts we have, are, some of them are 15 years apart, I think. I mean, he'd been working ten. on... Yeah. Ten. I'm sorry. Yeah. They, he'd been working on it for a long time, and over that time he constantly changed characters' names, uh, we gave them new names, and there would be a, you know, there were several chapters which I only came late to understand were actually the same character. He just given them a different name, but other clues within it. The, the next to the last chapter, um, 
it, until the last second had a different was was a character being introduced for the first time until I realized that it was it's a real irrelevant Chris Fogel, a very major character, um, who just he just hadn't given him that that name yet. So we made names consistent, job descriptions consistent, locations consistent. Um, he 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 was clarifying the the situation and the setting in many ways as he wrote. So we kind of took the last version of everything and spread it through the whole book. But how closely Bonnie did you work with Michael on the the edit? I mean. Um, well, what we did is, I mean, Michael took away this giant duffel bag and bags and bags of manuscript um, and then worked on it for about a year, year and a half by himself. Um, and then once it was sort of in a much more coherent form, we actually spent hours on the phone over about a week sort of going back and forth and back and forth of like, you know, section by section of like... Is this a video phone or... A yeah, actually, old-fashioned one. So you know, so you were able to. Uh, I was like, examine I your... was like filing my nails. I was, you know, Michael. I'm sure was like having five other conversations, um, and so we just did it. We thought, like, did we have to do it in person? We realized we could do it on the phone, and so we wound up doing it on the phone. Anyone else? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, you first, and then this behind you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, well, the material that didn't make it into your edition. Um, how much was there that didn't represent a kind of repetition of the material that did as it were, but you didn't include other reasons? That's, um, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a numerical figure to put on that. There, there were, there were um, when we, after reading all, all, of the, all of the material, it seemed like there were about 90 distinct pieces, chapters, scenes, um, that were not rep repetitions or various drafts, and that, as you know, the book is is fifty, roughly fifty chapters. Um, so there is a, there is a large mass mass of material. Much of it is that was not included were, were plot strands that he had just abandoned that that didn't cohere with the mass of, that is here, or that events in this uh, in in a later version it made it clear that he just get, he, they contradicted each other in a way that, that would have seemed very very. Confusing. There are a couple of other chapters with the character Sylvanshine, who's a great character, but doing things that conflict directly with the setting that uh, that uh, that, it, that finally emerged. And they're wonderful chapters. All of these chapters will be available to the public. His papers are going to the uh, Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, where in about a year they'll be available to scholars. So people will be able to see everything as they can presently see the, I think, the complete manuscript of everything he wrote from Infinite Jest is that available to the public? Yeah. So scholars are, 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 are having at it when there will be a lot of writing about the uh, other, other pieces. And there's actually, um, there's one chapter, is it chapter 9 that's online that we have from beginning oh, yeah. to end? The, the chapter, the first author here, chapter, the chapter which introduces the character, David Foster Wallace, is uh, available, I think, the, the five five drafts, seven drafts of it, um, from the first handwritten, very brief notes about it to the final version are available online at the Ransom Center. You can see David working his handwritten notes on the typescript um, all the way up through the last version. So there's a question at home. Yeah. Yeah, so the examination, uh, and given the work... Wait, wait, can't quite hear you? I'm sorry, I can't hear you at all. Oh, oh sorry, so the example just ask, um, given the work you've done at the Ransom Center anyway, you might be working at I remember when news of the publication book came out, there was a book uh, and a website being launched to put a lot of other stuff on there. And I don't know if that was ever official, an official decision on the whether it was just rumored that was something that website is is what, what I just described. We discovered that the, the massive material just these pages um, 
it felt like too much, and the Harry Ronson Center decided they wanted to have just multiple versions of one chapter for now rather than a, a great mass of, uh, of material. They decided it was, I think it was like, it would just have crashed, like, too many servers. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you <clears throat> both a question um, about the way the music of Wallace's prose changed over, over time. It, it certainly did. Um, you... You talk, Michael, about the attempt to directly address the reader, and there's, that, there's a story in Oblivion, and I forget which one, in which um, the character talks about wanting to directly palpate the reader, and that's certainly what Wallace was trying to do in his own, in his own prose. Michael, we spoke on the phone of, about ten days ago, and you said something very interesting to me. You said that David sometimes used the phrase in his workbooks, his notebooks, no voice, and that's what he was... Um, striving for. Could you say something about that? It seems deeply fascinating because one of the things one always gets when one re one's reading Wallace, wh whether he's writing about a, Cana a Canadian Quebecois terrorist group which uh, you know, runs around in wheelchairs, or he's writing about a tax office, um, you get uh, an utterly singular singular voice. So what, what was going on there? Really? That's, there, there are notes like that, and, and um, greater minds will, 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 uh, will address what he meant. Uh, I I took it as a challenge to himself that he was trying to get outside what he thought of as, as his mannerisms, that his, the, the, what, what we perceive as his style. I think he was striving to write something that to him sounded voiceless, which I'm sure to us would have sounded like an, you know, the most extraordinary voice ever heard. I think he was, he was listening for new music. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Um, I just wondered from your respective point of view, Ronnie and Michael, was there, I mean, I, know, I sort of imagine it was, but I wonder, was there any point at which it was tempting not to publish the book? I mean, like, if one can think of lots of reasons, perhaps, you know, something, well, David hadn't finished the book, he wouldn't want it to appear like this, and so I just wonder how, how that must have occurred to you at some point and how it progressed. Well, um, the sequence of events was um, Michael came out in January of 2009, and we actually like waited, there was a several months before we actually decided whether to publish it or not because the concern was not, the concern wasn't like should this be published, like would David have wanted it to be published? It was very clear he left it and left it to be found and left it to be published. The question was really did we think this was good enough? Did we think it was in good enough shape? Do we think it was finished enough to do it? Um, and so there were several months before we actually even had a contract where Michael was reading and I was reading and it was like, well, what do we think of this? So, and part of it was, I mean, we were all in a really bad state of grief um, and it took a while to actually be able to hear David's voice. You know, I mean, it took months before I could actually read it and sort of make any sort of um, value decision. And for, for me, the... Um once I had read this massive material, the idea of not making it available was in, inconceivable. Uh, David had written this enormous, harrowing, brilliant, just shining novel, I think a, a great accomplishment, and I think he was very, very proud of it. So I felt it, I felt it was important to, to try to bring it forward in the best, in the be, the, the best way we were capable, capable of. Anybody else? There's a gentleman here. Um, I haven't quite finished the conversation yet. The question I want to ask, coming back to the relation to David's voice, is that the footnotes in the document only seem to appear in David's chapters. And is that an attempt to separate his voice from the 
still his voice, but running through the novel. The question was, uh, the footnotes in The Pale King appear only in the chapters written, narrated by the character David Foster Wallace. And uh, what, what was that about? I mean, yeah, it was what? an attempt to sort of separate his own individual voice from kind of the overall voice he gave the novel. I think he was playing, uh, careful with my, that phrase there. I think he was having fun with his, his persona. Uh, I think he, by using himself as a, as, as, as a character, he, he was, uh, there's a lot of that in this book, actually. The, he was, he was um, I think he, he, it was self-commentary and, uh, and also, a, I think, an, in, an attempt to, to, to bring attention to the reality of the matters at hand. This is really, even, it's not David Foster Wallace in person, but the description of him is very, very close in many, in many particulars, and I think he was using that, that, those footnotes only there as a reference to what he'd done in the past, and, and, and that's the guy who just, whose voice is really, has got too many pieces going on. There's one here in the book. Um, there's not, like, there's no trunk in an attic somewhere. Um, there are, un, there are pieces that have been, that are uncollected, um, and there may be some things down the line, um, we're not quite sure yet. I mean, the Pale King is clearly, um, the magnum opus that we, you know, we knew he had been working on for a long time, um, but there are certainly pieces that were in really obscure magazines a long time ago that are not even on the internet. Whoa, not even on the internet. <laughs> not even on that the internet. internet better get yeah. short. I also hope at some point we will be able to publish a complete stories. Uh, there, he has three published volumes and many un unpublished stories and a, a single volume of all of his stories in chronological order I think would be a great, a great uh, thing to bring, bring out. Who's question? Yeah. yeah, you said that um, David was very much a writer of the American Midwest. I was just wondering who the other writers that you would like to Remember amongst us. Who were his heroes? Um, I don't know. You want to? Um, I mean, he certainly was friends with a number of other writers. <coughs> he was friends with um, Jonathan Franzen and Zadie Smith, and um, a number of his contemporaries, or sort of, you know, slightly younger writers. Um, he was very generous to other writers. You know, I mean, David read everything. I mean, he read everything from, you know. Goethe to Stephen King. So, I'm not, and I mean, his books, because we, Karen and I both went, not only went through, had to go through all the manuscripts, but went through all his books, um, which we then had to pack up for the Ransom Center. I mean, there was everything in there. I mean, it was, you know, it was not all literary fiction. I mean, it was Jackie Collins. It was like, it was all sorts of stuff, you know, with notes in it of like, how do other people do plot and how do other people do character? Um, I'm not sure I know how to answer that about who he would have admired. Well, he, he, I think it's safe to say that he admired Thomas Pynchon, the, the, the large com uh, comic voice, uh, ambitiously encompassing uh, style that he, that he um, promulgated was, uh, was dear to him. Right. And, 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 and he, yeah, right. he was very, very close. And I, I think that opening passage that 
Paul read so beautifully, I, I, I hear um, some similarities to some passages in the names and in the poetry of, of that. I know he loved uh, he loved Delillo's voice and corresponded with him extensively. Um, Beckett. I mean, there, there are a lot of influences in there. Um, I can't think of any particular Midwestern writers, if that's what you're asking, who would be he would have considered his uh, his forebears. The reason I ask is I'm, I'm rereading the Grapes of Wrath at the moment, uh-huh. and when you start talking about civics mm-hmm. and um, interest in you know the, the interest of the tax system as being a way of redistributing wealth, it just brought to mind passages in Steinbeck, you know, it's a very different writer stylistically. The the uh, the, the the comment is that, uh, that there may be stim- similarities to Steinbeck, which I think is uh, a very very good suggestion. I I somehow escaped my American education without ever having read anything except a little red pony. <laughs> so Steinbeck is unknown to me. He may well have been his greatest influence for all I know. But his relationship to Pynchon, you mentioned Pynchon, was nevertheless deeply ambivalent, wasn't it? Um, and he was wrestling with the, what he thought were the sort of deleterious effects of postmodern irony on, on the American culture. Not just on the culture at large, but also what it, what it had done to um, writers of his generation. And you see the same movement out of postmodernism into something um, more direct in, in the work of Jonathan Franzen, Jonathan Franzen as well. And there is a sense that by... You know, in those last years in the stories in Oblivion and then in, in The Pale King, he'd um, worked his way through the anxiety of his own influence to something that was really distinctively um, Wesleyan. I, I think it's a great, a great sorrow that he did not get to voice this novel to its, I mean, this, this you know, chapters published in, in first handwritten draft. I mean, some of, these, some of the chapters in this book are, are compressed and shined to an extraordinary, extraordinary um, uh, uh, gleam. And... Um, I think we all long to know what that voice would have been finally. Anybody else? I think. Should we? I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, as good a place to end um, as any. Um, I'm sure you want to thank. Join me in thanking um, Bonnie and Michael. I'd also like to thank Jonathan because I thought he um, yeah. shared that beautifully. And uh, also just to add that. Um, um, I personally can't imagine a better way to have um, marked the publication of this book here and to hear really with two things. One is to hear his words as read by Catherine and by Paul and and then to not quite hear his voice but almost to hear his voice um, through um, Bonnie and Michael and um, also, by the way, an incredible masterclass for a, an editor like me in um, hearing Michael talk about that. It's an incredible thing that he's done in this book, as you will find out. And um, but I'd like to thank all of you in order, uh, Michael, and Bonnie, Jonathan and Paul and Catherine. So give them all a big hand. Uh, that would be great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Penguin Podcast. The Pale King is available in hardback from Hamish Hamilton. If you want to get in touch, you can find us online at our website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, on Twitter at Penguin Books, and on email, podcast at penguin.co.uk. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.